Hello and welcome to today's reading of the Mason City Globe Gazette and the Fort Dodge Messenger for Tuesday, December 19th, 2023. I'm your reader, Scott Splavik, and here's our first story from the Mason City Globe Gazette, and it's entitled, A Joyful Noise, Seventh-day Adventist Church Presents Live Nativity Sing-Along. This is written by Alexander Schmidt of the Globe Gazette. Saturday night at Mason City's Seventh-day Adventist Church saw parishioners and hundreds of residents drop by its live nativity scene to, alongside the sheep and donkeys, herald the celebration of the birth of Jesus in the manger. Some clothed as wise men and some as shepherds, the nativity's participants, with Pastor Stephen Schaefer leading on the guitar, sang praises of their newborn Savior, such as Joy to the World, Hark the Herald Angels Sing, We Three Kings, and other hymns. We used to just pipe the music in until Stephen came along, church elder Mark Stegan said. Stegan supplied the livestock and said he can tell it's been a decade since he first participated in the live nativity because his donkeys are getting up there in years, and they made their debut the first time the church put on the annual event in 2013. This event is all about inclusion of everyone in the Christmas season and serves as great outreach for the church, according to Stegan. It's been the reason for the season, he said. Focus on shopping malls, Santa, and the reindeer. We wanted to bring it back. Nativity scenes don't need to be about preaching Bible verses. It's about showing and sharing the story. Can you just sit here? Can you sing? Schaefer, who has served as pastor since 2020, said the church's mission is to point eyes to Jesus. If we can get people to focus on Christ, then we've done our job. That's our only goal, he said. In another article from the front page of the Globe Gazette, also written by Alexander Schmidt, is entitled Explaining Iowa Caucuses Before First Ballots Cast. On January 15th, the time-honored tradition of the Iowa caucuses will once again see voters in the Hawkeye State cast the first ballots in the 2024 U.S. presidential nominating cycle. Since 1976, the Republicans and Democratic Party in Iowa have held their presidential nominating caucuses on the same day in January or early February, and since then have ostensibly served as a national weather vane in selecting presidential candidates. What's the difference between a caucus and a primary election? Primaries are run by the state government, while caucuses are organized by political parties. In a primary, ballots are cast secretly, either by in-person voting on primary election day or by early or absentee voting, typically held in school gymnasiums, church basements, and community centers. Caucuses are designed to both conduct local and state party business, such as selecting delegates to serve at county or state conventions and party committees, in addition to selecting the precinct's presidential preferences. Forty delegates to the Republican National Convention will be awarded on caucus night and 46 to the Democratic National Convention. The caucus system's reliance on in-person participation for what can be an hours-long process beginning at 7 p.m. has led many to argue that the system disadvantages a large swath of the working electorate who are unable to spare the time needed to attend on caucus night, along with elderly or disabled voters and those who aren't comfortable sharing their political views publicly. Why does Iowa do it this way? Political parties in Iowa have been holding caucuses since the 1800s. Only once, in the year 1916, did state law eschew the caucus system in favor of a partisan primary. 
which saw low participation and the decision was reversed the next year. After the 1968 election saw then-Vice President Hubert Humphrey clinch the Democratic nomination without competing in any primaries, the National Party committees took a more active role in scheduling of the nomination calendar. The Iowa caucuses first rocketed to status as a mainstream political event in 1976 when the dark horse candidacy of Georgia Governor Jimmy Carter was given the early momentum that would propel him to clinching the Democratic nomination and eventually the White House. In the 2024 cycle, Republicans in Alaska, Hawaii, Missouri, Nevada, and North Dakota will join Iowa in holding Republican caucuses instead of primaries, and Wyoming and Idaho are the only other two other states where Democrats will hold a, hold a caucus. How much does Iowa matter anyway? According to the data from the Pew Research Center, there have been 11 contested Democratic caucuses, and in six of those contests, the declared caucus winner ultimately was nominated. On the Republican side, there have been eight contested caucuses in that span, but in only three cases was the caucus winner ultimately the nominee. Joe Biden's defeat of incumbent President Donald Trump in the 2020 general election made him first candidate to do so without finishing in the top three in Iowa since the formalization of the caucus system in 1972. How are the 2024 caucuses different? After Iowa's 2020 Democratic caucus, the results were delayed for several days due to problems with the app used by the IDP in accurately reporting the results. This debacle led the DNC at Biden's urging to a sweeping restructure of the party's primary calendar, cutting Iowa out of the equation by making South Carolina's February 3rd primary the opening contest in 2024. With the breakdown of the 2020 Democratic caucuses shining a light on hacking and security concerns over virtual caucusing, Iowa Governor Kim Reynolds signed H-716 this June, which required voters to be physically present at caucuses. Local party business will still be conducted when the Democrats meet at caucus on January 15th, and caucus participants will select unbound delegates and alternate delegates to county conventions, elect county central committee members, and discuss platform resolutions that can be shared at county conventions. However, no presidential preference will be taken at the in-person precincts. That will instead be conducted by a mail-in or online presidential preference card. Those registered as Iowa Democrats by February 19, 2024, can request a card and submit their presidential preference, and the results will be released on March 5, 2024, or Super Tuesday. Precinct locations are listed at the Iowa Democratic Party's website. President Joe Biden has announced his re-election bid for a second term and, as the incumbent, faces little serious challenge in Iowa. Minnesota Congressman Dean Phillips and author... Marianne Williamson, will be included on the presidential preference ballot, according to the IDP. IDP Chair Rita Hart, endorsing Biden, said she expects him to win. President Biden has done more in his first two years than some presidents have done in two terms, and I believe he will win our 2024 Iowa caucuses, Hart said in a statement. The Iowa Republican caucuses are scheduled to be held at 7 p.m. on January 15, 2024, Precinct locations are listed on the Iowa Republican Party's caucus website. In order to caucus for the GOP presidential nomination, 
Iowans must be registered Republican voters. Iowans not registered to vote or not affiliated with the Republican Party still have the ability to register on caucus night by bringing a valid form of identification and proof of residence like a utility bill, paycheck, or property tax statement. People who are already registered Republicans do not have to bring proof of residence, but still must provide voter ID to participate. Valid identification documents include an Iowa driver's license, state non-operator ID, U.S. passport, military or veteran identification card, Iowa voter identification card, and tribal ID or document. The enthusiasm by everyday Iowans to fire Joe Biden from the White House is off the charts, especially as they hear from and meet with our deep bench of talented presidential candidates crisscrossing our state, Iowa GOP Chair Jeff Kaufman said in a news release. GOP caucus goers face a choice between former President Donald Trump, Florida Governor Ron DeSantis, former UN Ambassador Nikki Haley, businessman Vivek Ramaswamy, and former New Jersey Governor Chris Christie, among others. That brings us to an article entitled, Video Allegedly Shows NK Teacher Wielding Prop Gun. This is written by Alexander Schmidt of the Globe Gazette. A Northwood Kensett teacher was placed on administrative leave Sunday after a public video circulated on Facebook that appeared to show the teacher holding a gun. The alleged weapon in the video was said by the district to be a non-functioning prop the teacher, identified through the school's staff directory as K-12 music instructor William Kuckneff, is shown in the nine-second clip, which is captioned, Help, holding the gun by the butt and waving it around while seemingly arguing with students. It was posted late last week. You want to argue with secondary principal Mr. Keith Fritz? Do it. Don't argue with me, he said on the video. I follow Mr. Fritz's direction. The district did not confirm why the lookalike weapon was present in the classroom or if anyone was found in violation of the district's weapon policy, which reads in part, school district facilities are not an appropriate place for weapons, dangerous objects, and lookalikes. Weapons and other dangerous objects and lookalikes will be taken from students and others who bring them onto the school district property or onto property within the jurisdiction of the school district or from students who are within the control of the school district. Students found in possession of weapons, dangerous objects, or lookalikes on school property are subject to disciplinary action, including suspension or expulsion. The policy exempts weapons under the control of law enforcement officials or other individuals specifically authorized by the board. Superintendent Michael Crozier referred to a letter the district sent to parents Monday about the incident. Dear Viking family, we wanted to make you aware that yesterday we placed a staff member on administrative leave following an incident that occurred late last week in the classroom. The incident is under investigation. We are aware that a video is circulating related to the incident that appears to show a weapon in the classroom. While we are not at liberty to share specific details pending the outcome of the investigation, what we can share is that at no time was there an actual real weapon in our building, and we can confirm that at no time were students in threat of physical harm. I can certainly understand that this incident has raised concerns. Please know that we take all matters related to student safety, both psychological and physical, seriously and will ensure that the matter is resolved. 
Juvenile Arrested After Weekend Car Chase. This is written by Lisa Gruet. The theft of a vehicle from a Mason City residence led to a high-speed chase and subsequent arrest of an unarmed, unnamed minor Saturday night, authorities said. According to a statement from the Cerro Gorda County Sheriff's Office, the vehicle theft was reported to the Mason City Police Department around 9.30 p.m. At 9.57 p.m., the vehicle was spotted by sheriff's deputies in Clear Lake near the intersection of Highway 122 and North 40th Street. The driver of the vehicle failed to stop for deputies and continued west on Highway 18 to Garner, reaching speeds of 105 miles per hour. The driver eventually stopped near Palm Avenue in Hancock County and was taken into custody without incident. The vehicle was not damaged and has since been returned to its owner. The juvenile is facing felony charges of second-degree theft and eluding. They are also charged with having no driver's license, possession of alcohol as a minor, and failure to obey a, a traffic control device. The driver has been referred to juvenile court services for prosecution. Here's a short little article. Darlene Coolers, age 90. The family of Darlene Coolers, K-U-H-L-E-R-S, formerly of Clear Lake in Mason City, will be honoring their mother on January 3rd for her 90th birthday with a card shower. Please send greetings to Darlene Coolers, Stony Brook, room N1, 705 South Pine Street, West Union, Iowa, 52175. From the opinion page, we have an article entitled Songs of Holiday Jeer. Rick Ho Ho Horowitz leads carolers through the year in politics. And this is echoing, which is sung to the melody of Deck the Halls, echoing a certain German fa la 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 la. Donald uses words like vermin fa la 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 la, moving toward a choice so fateful. Fa-la-la, la-la-la, la-la-la, who can doubt the man is hateful? Fa-la-la-la-la, la-la, Biden is old, sung to joy to the world. Biden is old, he's 81. The numbers only climb. He shuffles when he walks, he stumbles when he talks. We hold our breath and cringe every time he feels a twinge. And we hunger a younger choice for history's hinge. Next, O Come Try Ozempic, which is sung to O Come All Ye Faithful. O Come Try Ozempic, toss aside your cravings, Ozempic, Ozempic makes them all go away. One bite and sated, no more second helpings, no extra pounds to carry, your side effects may vary, so ask your doc, don't tarry, if it's right for you. Santo Claus, con- Santos causes Congress to frown, sung to Santa Claus is coming to town. There's always a smile, he's cute as a pup, but then they find out he's made it all up. Santo causes Congress to frown. He used to have clout, his star was on the rise. They're tossing him out, though they're through with his lies. Santo flaws keep dumbing things down. Next, AI sung to the first Noel. AI, AI, the hottest 
thing. We gather together, it's praises to sing. Though boosters reassure we've got nothing to fear, though there's always the chance it deletes us next year. Always know, sung to let it snow. The atmosphere's rude and raucous in the mighty MAGA caucus. And there's only one way to go. Always know, always know, always know. Afraid that they're looking weaker, had to settle on a speaker. Did some vetting, but much too slow. Now they know, now they know, now they know. Next, Megan Rapino sung to Frosty the Snowman. Megan Rapino calls it quits, but what a run. With her skill and flair and some purple hair, look at all the things she's done. Surely a shero with a smile just made to meme. Always on a roll toward another goal, she inspire girls to. Next, here comes a leadowing, sung to here we come a caroling. Here he comes a leadowing as angry as can be. And likewise, Clarence Thomas resents the third degree. Ethics rules? Not for us. There's no need to make a fuss. And if friends pay for fancy rides or sailing on a yacht, they'll disclose what they choose. Or maybe not. Have yourself a Fanny Wills Christmas, sung to have yourself a merry little Christmas. Have yourself a Fanny Willis Christmas, time to cut a deal. Do it now or wait and file some lame appeal. Have yourself a Fanny Willie Christmas, Rico's at the door. Jump aboard and offer you just can't. Next, O Kamala, sung to O Tannenbaum. O Kamala, O Kamala. Why won't they give you credit? You're staying true as number two, but respect, you said it. You're doing what they ask of you. There's nothing else a Veep can do. But moving up for Kamala, Dems look, they think, they dread it. Next is gold bars sung to silver bells. Golden bars, fancy cars, what have you done, Bob Menendez? Cashing in such a sin, throwing your future away. Next, Tommy Tuberville, sung to Happy Holidays. Tommy Tuberville, Tommy Tuberville, with a grip as strong as iron and a brain of iron too, stinking up the joint just to make a point. While promotions face a roadblock, he's a blockhead through and through. Johnson says, the world's depraved, sung to angels we have heard on high. Johnson says, the world's depraved, swears he won't give in to hate. Mikey says, we must be saved, thinks the world should all be straight. Elon showed us how to kill a brand, sung to Winter Wonderland. Who can turn off the spigot when the rich guy's a bigot? We all need a bath to scrub off the wrath. Elon's Twitter ranting's out of hand. Join the club, be a critic. He's so anti-Semitic. He traffics in lies, not hard to despise. Elon showed us how to kill a brand. And finally, Taylor Swift, sung to Silent Night. Taylor Swift has a gift, gives the world such a lift. Filling venues, her eras roll by. Filling hearts, bring tears to the eye. Stardom that's rarely been seen. 
really though time magazine my apologies for my singing there's some news from around the state iowa farmers of color hold des moines event its first such gathering in the state to share resources and connections written by caleb mccullough of the globe gazette des moines bureau Farmers of color from across Iowa gathered for the first time on Saturday in Des Moines, sharing resources and forming connections they say will help minority farmers succeed in the state. Organized by Todd Western III, the first inaugural Iowa Farmers of Color Conference brought together black farmers in Iowa to network and find resources that can help them improve and innovate. Nearly 100 people, some farmers and others working in other areas of agriculture, attended the conference. Western, who lives near Minneapolis and farms his family-owned land in New Sharon and Waterloo, was inspired to start the conference after visiting the Harvest Ball in North Carolina, a national gathering of black farmers. Western said until recently he only knew one other black farmer, his neighbor. I was just so overwhelmed with the camaraderie, the community, the networking, and the friendships of black farmers coming together, he said. I said, We have to do this up north. Western's family has owned his Iowa farmland for more than 150 years, where they grow corn and soybeans. His ancestors settled the land near New Sharon in 1864 after buying their freedom from slavery in Virginia, he said. He's one of only about 72 black farmers in Iowa, according to the 2017 Census of Agriculture. There aren't any formal organizations connecting Iowa's black farmers, and breaking down those silos and connecting farmers of color was a major goal of the conference, Western said. Ryan Madison, who operates Mad Acre Farms in Gladbrook, growing specialty crops, said he does not know any other black farmers in the area. It's always nice to see someone that looks like you that's doing farming, he said. There's not too many people of color farming in Iowa, so it's kind of nice seeing people that look like you doing the same thing that you're doing. Madison said he has found a welcoming community where he farms, but he faced discrimination initially trying to buy land in Iowa. When he walked upon the land he was planning to buy for an agreed-upon inspection, the owner called the police and accused him of trespassing, he said, and then pulled their offer to sell the land. God works in mysterious ways because it actually worked out perfectly for us because we've got awesome neighbors, he said. Ricky King, a genealogist who was working on a project on the history of black farmers in Iowa, said it is important to show that Iowa has a long history of black farmers cultivating the land. There have been farmers of color in Iowa since it became a territory in the 1830s, including a group of 50 people who settled in Fayette County in 1854. I didn't know there was black farmers in Iowa just until last year, she said. And besides this event, we need to have other events just spotlighting farmers of any minority, and that's my goal. But despite that history, Iowa's black farmers are disconnected, isolated, and face unique challenges, conference speakers said. Dwayne Goldman, the USDA Senior Advisor for Racial Equity, said uniting black farmers who have a shared history and face similar problems can help connect them to people and resources they need. When you're a black farmer, a farmer of color, you have to fight all the issues all other farmers fight. You also have to fight isolation, he said. Too often times discrimination then comes with that and you feel like you operate in a vacuum. 
The isolation sometimes leads to a lack of understanding around loan programs, federal assistance, and business opportunities, said Sylvester Miller II, a U.S. crop technology marketing manager at FMC who farms in Missouri and Arkansas. Speakers at the conference highlighted a number of federal programs through the USDA and local nonprofits designed to aid black farmers and other minority farmers who have been historically left out of the department's loan programs. In 1999, the U.S. government settled a lawsuit alleging it had discriminated against black farmers in allocating loans and federal assistance. Much of the promised payments did not reach the farmers they were intended to help, and in 2010, Congress spent $1.2 billion in another round of payouts. An NPR analysis from February found that black farmers are still disproportionately denied from USDA programs. 36% for black farmers were approved for direct loan applications in 2022, while 72% of white farmers were approved. Under President Joe Biden's administration, the USDA and other agencies were charged with promoting equity and inclusion initiatives. Two recent government programs are designed to address historic discrimination in agriculture, Goldman said. One program, part of the American Rescue Plan of 2021, provides debt forgiveness for socially disadvantaged farmers. Another, the Discrimination Financial Assistance Program, included in the 2022 Inflation Reduction Act, provides financial assistance to people who were discriminated against in farm lending programs. We acknowledge the useless and painful history of discrimination. We're going to draw a line in the sand and give you better access to resources, capital, personnel as we go forward, Goldman said. It's important that we do that. It is important for agriculture that we do that. Western said he's planning to make the conference an annual event and find ways to engage the group between the annual conferences. He said he hopes Iowa's black farmers continue to lean on the network developed at the conference. For these individuals that attended this, to have a connection point now so that they can call any time they want to, to these subject matter experts throughout the year, he said, and ultimately that we have a community now that we can communicate with throughout the year and that we all then benefit with higher years, lower costs, and great bountiful harvests. Now we'll move to today's obituaries. First, we remember Glenn White. Glenn Ernest White, age 83, of Mason City, Iowa, passed away on December the 10th in Mesa, Arizona. Glenn received his education from Doherty No. 9 Primary School and graduated from Mason City High School. He furthered his education at North Iowa Area Community College. Glenn dedicated his life to serving his country and community. He proudly served in the Marines, Army, and National Guard, showcasing his unwavering commitment to protecting and defending his nation. Following his military service, Glenn pursued a career in law enforcement. He served as a police officer at the Mason City Police Department, where he demonstrated bravery and dedication in upholding the law. Following his retirement from law enforcement in 1986, he worked as a foreman at California Portland Cemetery in Tucson, Arizona. Glenn Ernest Wyke will be remembered for his remarkable service to his country, his dedication to his community, and his love for his family. His friendly and loving nature will forever be cherished by those who knew him. Next, we remember Larry D. Getz. 
is age 72 of Northwood, who passed away peacefully Saturday, December 16, 2023, at Mercy One, North Iowa, in Mason City, surrounded by family. Funeral services will be held 1.30 p.m. Friday, December 22nd, at First Lutheran Church, 309 9th Street North, in Northwood, Iowa, with Reverend Becky Sagi officiating. He will be laid to rest at Sunset Rest Cemetery, Northwood. Visitation will be from 5 to 7 p.m. Thursday, December 21st at Connor Colonial Chapel, 1008 First Avenue South, Northwood, Iowa. Visitation will continue one hour prior to the service at the church. The family suggests more memorials be directed to First Lutheran Church or the Northwood Volunteer Fire Department. Connor Colonial Chapel, 641-324-1543 or colonialchapels.com. Next, we remember Bruce E. Sankey, age 88, of Garner, who passed away Saturday, December the 16th, 2023. A funeral mass will be held 10.30 a.m. Thursday, December 21st at St. Boniface Catholic Church in Garner. Burial will be at Conrad Township Cemetery. Arrangements are being handled by Cataldo Funeral Home. Next, we remember Donella L. Brecky, age 92, of Rockwell and formerly a Mason City, who passed away Thursday, December 14th. Funeral services at 1 p.m. Wednesday, December 20th at Grace United Methodist Church, 214th Street, Northwest Mason City, Iowa. Burial at Pleasant Valley Township Cemetery in Swaledale, Iowa. Hogan Bremer Moore Colonial Chapel, colonialchapels.com, 641-423-2372. And finally, we remember Mary Jane Jacobek Gaffey, age 79, of Charles City, who passed away Wednesday, December the 13th, at the Floyd County Medical Center in Charles City. A funeral mass for Mary Jane will be held at 10.30 a.m. on Thursday, December the 21st, at Immaculate Conception Catholic Church in Charles City with Reverend Tom Heathershaw officiating. An earnment will be at Calvary Cemetery in Charles City. Visitation will be from 5 to 7 p.m. on Wednesday, December the 20th at Hauser Weisschar Funeral Home with a scripture service beginning at 7 p.m. Visitation will continue one hour before the service at the church on Thursday. Memorials may be directed to St. Croix Hospice, Paws, or Immaculate Conception Catholic School. Hauser Weishar Funeral Home, 641-228-2323-1205 South Main Street, Charles City, Iowa, is in charge of local arrangements. Online condolences may be left on the tribute wall for the family at www. Dot Hauser F H that's H A U S E R F H dot com. We'll do one quick sports article. It's entitled NIACC Men's Basketball Wins on Road. It was a busy weekend in North Iowa sports action. Here's a recap of all the action. College men's basketball, after trailing by as many as twenty, Nyack came back to steal a road conference win over Northeast CC one hundred and ninety-three on Saturday. The Trojans trailed 52-32 at halftime and scored 68 points in the second half. O'Marion Roberts scored a game-high 25 points to lead Nyack, and Markel Newsom added 24. Wyatt Helming scored 11. 
The Trojans moved to a record of 8-6 and six on the season and 2-2 two and two in conference play. College women's basketball, Tori Miller led Nyack to hold on for a 62-60 win over Northeast CC on Saturday. The freshman scored 23 points and 10 rebounds to lead all scorers. Northeast had a chance to tie at the buzzer but missed. Kiera Anderson scored 7 points and had 9 boards and 3 assists. Trojans moved to 4th in the ICCAC standings and own a 10-4 record and are 3-2 in conference play. In high school girls basketball, Clear Lake ran away with a 48-22 win over Fort Dodge St. Edmund on Friday night behind a 21.10 rebound double-double by Maddie Ott. The Lions pulled away after the first quarter and led by double digits the whole way. Addie Doman had 14 points. Three players scored in double figures as Newman Catholic edged Northwood Kenneth Kensett 48-43 on Friday. Sammy Kruckenberg led the Knights with 18 points and 11 rebounds, while Liz Kruckenberg added 11 points and 12 boards. Kenna Hemmen scored 10. In high school boys basketball, Newman Catholic picked up a big road win on Friday night, defeating Northwood Kensett 76-52. The Knights pulled away by outscoring the Vikings 21-11 in the third quarter. Wesley Cole led the team with 18 points, and Colin Bleal had 15 and 8 rebounds. Clear Lake's game against Fort Dodge St. Edmunds was postponed with a date to be determined. You're listening to the Mason City Globe Gazette and the Fort Dodge Messenger on Iowa, the Iowa on Iris, excuse me, the Iowa Radio Reading Information Service for the Blind. All material heard on Iris is intended solely for the use of the blind and print disabled. I'm your reader, Scott Splavik. Now we'll move on to the Fort Dodge Messenger. And the top story, Fort Dodge budgets for trash collection, storm sewer work. Ferkey says City is in need of a new central garage. This is written by Bill Shea. Picking up the garbage and recycling materials is a big ticket item for the Fort Dodge City government. The sanitation budget, which pays for doing those chores, totals about $1.8 million. All of that money comes from fees. The City Council reviewed the proposed 2024-2025 budget for sanitation when it met Monday. The elected officials also reviewed several other proposed budgets. Included in the proposed expenditures is $75,000 to begin planning for a new central garage to be used by the Public Works Department. The new facility would replace the current one at 3001 8th Avenue South. The building is pretty old, City Manager David Ferkey said. It is starting to show its age. It was not designed to be a municipal public works facility. He said planning for a new facility will be a lengthy process. He added that the city does not yet have a method of paying for a new central garage. The council members did not make any changes to the budgets they reviewed Monday. Here's a summary of the budgets reviewed Monday. Storm Water Utility, current budget $3,481,000, proposed budget $5,211,000. What the budget pays for, storm grains and storm sewers. Major outlays, $1.2 million for storm sewer improvements on South 12th Street downtown. The budget gets its money from fees that property owners pay based on the amount of impermeable surfaces such as roofs, driveways, and parking lots on their land. 
Sanitation's current budget is $1,757,000. The proposed budget is $1,821,000. What the budget pays for, collection of trash and recyclable materials and landfill fees. Inspections, current budget, $455,000. Proposed budget, $457,000. The budget pays for building, rental housing, and nuisance inspections. Development services, current budget, $278,000. Proposed budget, $303,000. The budget pays for planning and zoning services. Central Garage, current budget $210,000, proposed budget $330,000. The budget pays for operations of the Public Works Department's Central Garage. City Hall Maintenance, current budget $128,000, proposed budget $155,000. What the budget pays for, maintenance of the municipal building, and major outlays were $10,000 for web-based heating, ventilation, and air conditioning controls. Self-supported municipal improvement district. Currently, the budget is $71,000. The proposed budget is $92,000. This budget gets its money from an extra property tax paid by landowners in a roughly 33-block downtown area. It pays for operating the Main Street Fort Dodge program. And corridor self-supported municipal improvement district. Current budget is $22,000. The proposed budget is $35,000. This budget gets its money from an extra property tax paid by landowners along 5th Avenue South Corridor of Commerce. It pays for snow and ice removal on the sidewalks and mowing in the rights of way. Deck the House Holiday Light Display Dazzles in Fort Dodge Neighborhood. This is written by Kelby Wingert. A longtime tradition of many area families is to pack everyone into the family car and drive around the different neighborhoods to admire the festive holiday light displays. Those perusing through the round prairie neighborhood of Fort Dodge might just be greeted with an unusual sight, a 12-foot skeleton dressed up like Santa Claus. Matthew Sanders and Brenda Rowley's Third Street Light Show has become a local favorite. Their home at 702 North Third Street is covered in dazzling LED lights that are programmed to choreography, matching holiday music that can be heard by tuning an FM radio to 88.7. It just keeps getting bigger and bigger, Sanders said of his lights display. Sanders' passion for holiday light decorations started at a young age. Growing up in Dayton, his family would go all out in decorating their home and yard for the community's annual holiday lights contest. We'd win the Dayton contest every year until we were disqualified, Sanders said. They said we couldn't do it anymore because people got mad that we kept winning. When Sanders moved into his current home in 2008, he began his holiday lights display. But the choreographed lights show synced up to music didn't start until about three years ago. The light display's beginnings can be seen with a wooden tractor outlined in LED lights on the side of the home. The tractor was built by Sanders and his father in the late 1980s for their family's light show at the time. Nearly every inch of the yard and exterior walls of the home are covered in holiday decorations and lights. Sanders said he lost count of how many items he has out on display. Scully, the skeleton, greets visitors at the corner, dressed in a Santa suit and beard. The couple also does a Halloween lights display during October, and Scully, as well as a couple other skeletons, now dressed as Clark Griswold and Cousin Eddie from Christmas Vacation, are holdovers from that display.
We started this display right after Halloween, Rowley said. We took down Halloween in one day, and when we started putting, th- and then we started putting things up. And he's been building things, and we keep putting things up all the time. Nearly every piece of the display is handmade by Sanders. It's pretty much year-round, he said. I work on little things here and there. In total, there are roughly 80,000 LED lights in the entire display. On a small patio off the driveway, Rowley has set up a place where families can sit down and take photos. The centerpiece, however, is the bright red mailbox for letters to Santa. Young visitors can leave a letter to Santa with their name and address, and in a few days, they'll get a letter back. Rowley was inspired by a project a local 4-H group did in a town she lived in previously. My kids loved it, so I wanted to do a mailbox, she said. So far, she's sent out about 42 letters, but she checks the mailbox each evening for any new Santa mail. We just really enjoyed doing it, Rowley said. The light's display's future is about as bright as its 80,000 LED lights. I just want to keep getting it as big as I can, Sanders said. There's always a place to put something new. The light show, complete with music, plays every night after dark. It will run through January 1st. Updates on the display can be found on the Facebook page, Third Street Light Show. Camera Equipment Purchased for FDPD The Fort Dodge City Council on Monday purchased $357,113.30 worth of camera equipment for the police department. The purchase includes 41 body cameras, 12 patrol vehicle cameras, and cameras for the rooms in the law enforcement center where officers conduct interviews. All the cameras replace ones that are four to eight years old, some of which are no longer supported by their manufacturers. All of the new cameras are being bought from Axon Enterprises Incorporated of Scottsdale, Arizona. Councilwoman Lydia Schur was absent from the otherwise unanimous vote to approve the purchase. Fort Dodge School Board OK's construction plans. Roof replacement, parking lot, sidewalk repairs on tap. It's written by Kelby Wingert. The initial plans and cost estimate for two major construction projects were approved by the Fort Dodge Community School District Board of Education on Monday evening. The first project approved was the replacement of the roof above the swimming pool at Fort Dodge Senior High. That section of roof is the oldest in the district, last replaced in 1992, according to Director of Buildings and Grounds Ryan Utley. The roof replacement project is projected to cost around $700,000. Bids for the project will be due on January 31st, and the winning bid will be awarded by the school board at its following meeting. The second project is for the repairs of several parking lots and sidewalks at various district buildings. Sites include Cooper Elementary, Butler Elementary, Dodger Stadium, Fort Dodge Senior High, and Field Haver Elementary. The parking lot and sidewalk repair project is estimated to cost just under $1.4 million, Utley said. The bids for this project will also be due January 31st and awarded at the following school board meeting. Here's an article entitled, Council Members Honor Monkey. He is retiring after a decade of service. This is written by Bill Shea of The Messenger. Terry Monkey had a track record of serving his community long before he took the oath of office as a member of the Fort Dodge City Council. He started the Backpack Buddies program, which provided qualifying children with nutritious food to eat on the weekends. Then he led the way on creating the Veterans Memorial Park along Badger Lake, which now bears his name. 
A decade ago, we became the council representative of Ward 1 and promptly began pushing for a diverse range of projects from fixing the front steps of the municipal building to starting a broadband utility. Along the way, he became known for thoroughly questioning members of the city staff during council meetings. I've been asked if the city has turned the corner, Councilman Dave Flattery said during Monday's council meeting. I think it turned the corner when Terry joined the council. Monday's session was Monkey's last one as a council member. Suffering from cancer, he decided not to run for re-election in November. He will remain a member of the council through January 1st, but there are no more council meetings scheduled this year. On Monday evening, City Manager David Ferkey presented Monkey with a plaque honoring him for his years of service. I work with great people on the council, Monkey said. I think we made a lot of progress over the last 10 years. There's a lot of exciting things coming up, he added. City officials recalled Monkey's persistence when he was pursuing projects he felt were important. Flattery said when he was working to get the Floyd of Rosedale sculpture at the intersection of 10th Avenue North and 32nd Street, Monkey called him every week to check on the progress. Ferkey said that as complaints mounted about the internet service provided by Frontier and Mediacom, Monkey came to him and said, we really ought to look at doing our own broadband. That was something you pushed early on, he told the councilman. In a 2019 referendum, city voters gave the council the power to consider establishing a broadband utility. Today, that utility, called Fort Dodge Fiber, is under construction. Councilman Cameron Nelson described Monkey as a good civic leader to the community. Councilman Kim Allstott said Monkey's contributions to the community extend far beyond city council work. He does a lot of things you don't know about, Allstott said. On January 2nd, Jen Crimmins will replace Monkey as the Ward 1 representative on the council. I've got a good replacement, Monkey said. Now we turn to today's obituaries. First, we remember David Knudsen, age 80, of Badger, who died at his home on Monday, December the 18th, 2023. Funeral services will be held 1.30 p.m. Friday, December the 22nd, with the visitation one hour prior to the service at Gunderson Funeral Home. Next, we remember Richard Walters of Rockwell City, 10.30 a.m. Friday at Manuel Lutheran Church, Rockwell City, burial at St. Francis Cemetery. Lofsweilerfuneralhome.com is where you can find more information. Now we remember Joseph Gruntorad age 73, who died December the 17th at UNMC in Omaha, Nebraska. Visitation from 9 to 11 a.m. with funeral mass at 11 a.m. on December the 21st at St. Sebastian OLGC in Fonda. And we remember William James King Jr., age 60, of Fort Dodge, who died December the 17th, 2023, at his home. Private family services will be held at a later date. Memorials may be directed to the family. You can find more information at www.brucesfuneralhome.com. Now we remember Ann L. Drizsimski, age 86, of Fort Dodge, who passed away Sunday, December the 17th, 2023, at Friendship Haven. Services are pending with Loftsweiler Funeral Home. And we remember Ardell Van Oosten of Mercervy, 
who passed away Sunday, December the 17th, 2023 at Mercy Medical Center in Mason City, Iowa. Ewing Funeral Home is in charge of arrangements. And finally, we remember Lola Ray Bayarda of age 83, uh, who passed away Monday, December the 18th, 2023. Uh, Lola Ray was from Dows, Iowa. Ewing Funeral Home is in charge of arrangements. Now we'll turn to sports and start with an article entitled Fighting Through Dodger Girls Close the Door on Spencer. It's written by Eric Pratt of The Messenger. The Fort Dodge girls basketball team was on shaky ground after building a seemingly insurmountable lead against Spencer, but the Dodgers closed the door on a 44-34 victory to conclude the pre-holiday break portion of the schedule with a 5-3 record. Junior Mia McCaleb scored 17 points and sophomore LJ Mayle added 15 for homestanding Fort Dodge, which led 31-12 to midway through the third quarter before struggling to shake the winless Tigers here on Monday. The main point is that we finished, Dodger head coach Scott Messerly said. I thought we had a good run that gave us some breathing room, but we kind of lost our energy and had a stretch where we got outfought. We let them back in it before closing it out, and it's always good to build some momentum with two victories heading into Christmas. Mail was the catalyst in the first half with 12 of her points, while Michaela helped bring things home down the stretch by scoring nine after the intermission. The Dodgers made just one field goal in the fourth quarter, attempting only four, but were a respectable seven for ten at the charity stripe to end it after starting the game two of eight at the foul line. Spencer did crawl back to within 35-28 on a traditional three-point play and a triple from behind the arc to open the final frame, and the Tigers trailed by only six after a basket with a minute and 31 seconds left in regulation. The visitors ran out of steam, however, and failed to score again. I know Spencer hasn't won yet, but they're not a bad ball club, Messerly said. They've played the toughest schedule in the state so far for Class 4A, and still have Mason City and Newell Fonda left before the break. The combined record of the Tigers' seven opponents so far stands at 41-18. The fifth-ranked Riverhawks are 6-1, and and the number two Mustangs are 7-1. We're not executing with enough consistency, and we're having a hard time following through on design plays, especially out of timeouts, Messerly said. We're just not situationally aware at times, but we're still learning. I think we could be sitting at 7-1 and one or 8-0. and oh. Fort Dodge has lost by five points or less in all three of its setbacks. But we also haven't been good enough to earn it. So we have to keep working hard and being better at both communication and energy from start to finish. Spencer turned the ball over 28 times. The Dodgers weren't much better in protecting the ball, committing 21 turnovers. Fort Dodge is now off until January 4th and 5th when it hosts number 10 Sioux City East and Mason City in back-to-back showdowns. Drought hinders Dodger boys again, also written by Eric Pratt. Willie Williams knows his Fort Dodge boys basketball squad doesn't have the margin for error, physically or mentally, to overcome any kind of long-scoring drought at the Class 4A varsity level. For 25 of the 32 minutes on Monday against Spencer, the Dodgers were locked in and right in the hunt with the Tigers. A seven-minute lull doomed FDSH, though, 
in what has become a theme for the team so far this season. Spencer ultimately prevailed 59-49. to The Dodgers led the Tigers for most of the first quarter and fought through a troublesome end to the opening half to get within 32-29 with 5 minutes and 25 seconds remaining in the third period. That's when things unraveled as Spencer went on a 15-1 run through the rest of the quarter and even into the early stages of the fourth. We fought harms, Williams said. I can't fault our effort at all. We came with the intensity we needed in the first quarter, and even though they ended with a burst to go up by seven points at intermission, we came out with three baskets to get back within three. But seven minutes without a basket can't happen. It just can't. We've shown in games recently that we have what it takes to be right in it, but the difference between that and winning is little things. We have to show the same toughness and heart and sense of urgency we showed at the start or trying to come back from 46 to 30 down at times, start to finish. Junior Cade Westerhoff heated up in the final stanza, scoring 10 of his game-high 20 points to fuel a comeback that had Fort Dodge within 48 to 42 with 358 left to play. A basket by junior Drake Warland made it 54-49 to in the last minute, but the Dodgers ran out of steam and time. Warland also reached double figures with 11 points. Sophomore Hayden Zuspin hit two big buckets in the opening quarter off the bench as the Dodgers led 15-14. to Fort Dodge again struggled with the opposition's height advantage as six foot four junior post player Jack Barons paced the Tigers with 19 points, while six foot four inch junior Kale Brunning added 13. Our focus has to be better for 32 full minutes, Williams said. It just is what it is. We don't have the luxury of leaning on a big guy or a sharpshooter when things dry up. We have to outwork our opponent, and we have to do it almost every single possession. I think if you look at this game, we did that a lot, but not enough. Spencer, which is coached by former Southern Cal Lake City standout Corey Petzenhauser, has now won three straight following an 0-2 start. After 15 days off, the Dodgers are at Sioux City West on January 2nd. Fort Dodge then hosts Sioux City East and Mason City back-to-back on January 4th and 5th. Crooks named it Big 12 Freshman of the Week. Iowa State's Audie Crooks has earned Big 12 Freshman of the Week honors following a 20-point performance in a 105-68 victory over Troy. It marks the first weekly award of Crooks's career and the first award for an Iowa State player this season. Crooks, a Bishop Garrigan graduate, led the Cyclones with 21 points on 9 of 10 shooting from the floor in Sunday's victory. Her field goal percentage of 900 tied the fourth best mark by a freshman in program history. Crooks connected on her first seven attempts from the field, starting with a three-pointer in the first three minutes of play. She narrowly missed her second double-double of the season with nine rebounds. Crooks led the Big 12 this week in field goal percentage with 900 and was second in scoring average with 21 points per game. Crooks Crooks leads the team with 16.1 points per game and a 670 season field goal percentage. She ranks 8th among NCAA Division I freshmen for points per game and is 7th nationally and 3rd in the Big 12 among all players for field goal percentage. She's the only freshman in the country to average double figures, scoring and shoot over 65% from the field. Crooks also chips in 6 rebounds per game and has added 3 points shooting to her game, going 2-3 from behind the arc.
Iowa State returns to Hilton Coliseum for its final non-conference game of the season, facing in-state opponent UNI on Wednesday. Tip-off is set for 6.30 p.m. That brings us to the end of today's reading of the Mason City Globe Gazette and the Fort Dodge Messenger. I'm your reader, Scott Splavik. Thanks for sharing your time with IRIS, the Iowa Radio Reading Information Service for the Blind.